the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And as we have been doing for weeks with the COVID virus, we're talking about a special edition of The Advocate. And uh, in the first two segments tonight, we're going to be talking to a doctor who has firsthand experience in the front lines here in Cleveland about how the COVID virus is being transmitted, how much he's seeing of it, and maybe some insight as far as what's going on today and tomorrow with the COVID virus. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ann Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. You know, we've had you on before wearing a different hat as uh, working with the FAA and being a, a medical examiner for uh, the FAA, uh, which is, for me, always the fun part of life. But uh, we've, we've been talking, and we've known each other for years. We've been talking recently about your experience uh, working in an emergency room and dealing with COVID. Uh, in your decades of service in the medical profession, uh, what can you do to summarize what's going on with the COVID virus now and well, how I think the media has been handling things? Well, um, first, COVID is a new virus, and so it should be taken very seriously. Um, and, and the problem that we had with COVID, and as time goes on, we get smarter, is that we didn't know who had it until they were very sick because we had no way of testing initially. Many people are asymptomatic carriers. And the question is whether because they have the virus and they're asymptomatic, can they transmit it? Because everyone who has something doesn't necessarily transmit it. And we found that the they, they didn't show any evidence of infection. For instance, like the seasonal flu, people were most, of, most contagious two to three days before they get sick. But when they get sick, we isolate them or they should be isolated. And, of course, we have a vaccine, which is about maybe 60% effective. It's not that great. But we have something to deal with. With COVID, we didn't have anything. We were just seeing very, very ill people coming in, and we <clears throat> we didn't know what they had. Um, we've gotten a lot smarter. Um, over the last couple of weeks, the incidence of COVID coming, we're testing a lot more now than we did before. We're finding that a lot of people are positive, maybe about 13% of what we've tested, and I think the most recent stats are about 12 million and change. About 13% of those people are positive, but that doesn't mean they're all sick. So that's where the problem comes in. Um, Japan did a very interesting thing, um, whether it's right or wrong, with uh, what happened with the Diamond Princess uh, cruise. All those people are, many of those people were infected with coronavirus, but many were not, despite close uh, infection rates, or should be infection rates. And so they looked at it and said, well, what's going on here? And they started doing, which I think is a good way of handling this sort of clustering. People who are sick get isolated. <laughs> people who aren't sick don't get isolated. I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've never heard of taking healthy people and putting them in isolation. 
So I think that was a big problem. They didn't close down their country. They have far less. Tokyo, being the most dense population populated city in the world, didn't have as nearly as many deaths as New York City. So I'm trying to, as I read more and more, trying to figure out what was going on. What did they do that was different than what we've done? And they did this cluster approach, you know. And of course, it's their culture too. There isn't a physical contact; is not part of their con, uh, their culture. If you've ever been in a Japanese subway, it's awful. But you don't talk. They're pushers. They yeah, have the right. jammers. They'll jam you into the subway. Right, and uh, routinely the Japanese wear masks because of hay fever and other reasons, so they already had masks on. So their rate of infectivity was much less than what we had in this country. Um, They didn't lock down their country. When they had a cluster of infected individuals, the government came in and and they took, say, stay in, this way, in, 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 and they could control it. Many places in this country don't have COVID. We're not seeing it. So I'm not sure that it, we should have had a nationwide, everything is closed. I'm not sure that that was the most uh, progressive thing to do. But so brings, you look brings at things. Up we've been, well, we, we've been watching what's going on in Sweden, where they didn't close mm-hmm. everything down. And right. uh, they're being criticized now for the death rate. Sweden, about the size population-wise of Ohio, mm-hmm. has uh, a little over two times as many deaths uh, with the uncontrolled, un, unshutdown. Uh, and, and the question is, and we see sort of a binary question here in Ohio, while in the country, we have the health and science on the one side, and on the other side, we have the economy and the social aspects of how are we handling this virus. Uh, so with regard to Sweden, is a good example of how they uh, had the society open, and there's a lot more dead people because of it. Uh, yeah, per, per capita, have, I would say. Per, per um, capita. Well, how, how does that square up with what we have been doing up to this point? Well, we've, you know, shutting down the country is, causes an, a lot of other problems. And I'm, not, I'm just looking at the health aspect of it. I'm, I'm, I'm taking the financial and the economy out of the picture. You're seeing a lot more people coming in with drug overdoses, uh, complications from alcoholism and mental health. People aren't going to the emergency room because they're afraid they're going to get COVID, so they stay home until the last minute with a heart attack or having a stroke. I mean, there are lots of other things out there that people get sick with other than COVID. And so that is certainly contributing to morbidity and mortality, in, in, at least in this area we've seen. Um, I see a lot of influenza B when I finally get people in. Um, testing them, and they have influenza B, and they're relieved that they don't have COVID, but I say, you're still stinky sick. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's yeah, right. the way it is. Uh, people with community-acquired Fire. pneumonia, people die with community-acquired pneumonia, and they, they're they not coming to the emergency room or calling their doctors. There's a lot of telemedicine, so I get a lot of patients that are referred to me from telemedicine because they need to be seen. And But the the fear that the population has to get any kind of health care is, is really disconcerting, to say the least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well, it is. I think uh, the, the media, which has been reporting the ongoing situation, has been very successful in uh, panicking the, in the entire country, getting everyone <laughs> very fearful. Now, do you think that, that fear that everyone has, keeping them indoors, is, is beneficial, or are we overdoing it? Um, I think that's probably my personal feeling, and I've talked to my other friends, peers who are also in medicine, 
think it's a little bit overdone, um, especially so you take a family, let's say a five, and you have an asymptomatic carrier that, you know, they're not sick, but you have individuals in that family that are high risk uh, for contracting it so that you isolate them together. What's going to happen? <laughs> they're all going the to come down people, with COVID. Yeah. yeah, because you've kept them isolated. Uh, so uh, I know that the, something came out um, in New York. They were, con- they were, they said like 66% of the people who had COVID that were in isolation were from families. Well, that makes sense to me. If you have an asymptomatic carrier, that's what's going to happen. People are going to get infected. You know, if you're in the same area and poor ventilation, it's a it's the equation mm-hmm. for the disease. So, so what? So, what is the best uh, way way to handle this as an individual? Because we have all of these factors. For example, you mentioned the emotional factor that we have, uh, and with regard to uh, how are we dealing with this? We're opening up the economy. Are people trying to get back carefully? But everybody, right. a lot of people well, are scared I, I, to death. Right. And, and, and I think the problem starts with not giving our, our populace tools to take care of themselves and to take care of their family. Sir William Ausler, who I, uh, I love, if you ever read any of his uh, books, was brilliant. And he talked about these epidemics and these pandemics. And what did he say? Soap and water and common sense. Okay? If someone is sick, you don't want to go in and spend time with that individual. You are going to, chances are you're going to infect yourself. I watch people driving through, <coughs> excuse me, the takeouts for food. Mm-hmm. And they're getting the food and they're eating. They haven't washed their hands. So... In all likelihood, they could have had it on their hands and they're infecting themselves. I mean, those sorts of things I think are important to do. I always felt that wearing a mask early on was important because something, my feeling is something is better than nothing. And if somebody is standing near you and sneezing and coughing and you don't have any kind of protection, you know, your inoculum is going to be much higher. So I think these are the things that people need to do. I don't think they need to be afraid. I think they need to uh, be more cautious. I think they need to not be in a crowded room with a bunch of people. I think they need to self-protect with a mask. Washing your hands all the time, keeping them clean. Is, uh, these are important things to do, things that we actually should be doing, not necessarily the mask, but on a day-to-day basis without an epidemic, we should be having better hygiene. <laughs> it, well, having, and I think we're all learning that through this uh, experience we're having with COVID-19 is that uh, it's invisible. We don't know where it is. We don't know where it isn't. Uh, so we're just assuming it's everywhere. And we're, we're washing our hands constantly. We're trying to stay away from those crowds, uh, especially people who are over 60, like myself, uh, a high-risk group. We're not going to tempt fate with what's going on out here. But we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll about COVID-19. She's a, fr- a front-line doctor involved with treating patients with COVID symptoms. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking about COVID-19 with Dr. Ann Carroll. Uh, Dr. Carroll has been on our program before talking about FAA medical licensures and certifications, but today we're talking to her about her experience in the emergency room dealing with COVID patients. Dr. Carroll, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. You know, when uh, during the break we were talking about uh, the the virus being a novel virus and the fact that there's it's lethal in some cases, but uh, I think as an average person, we're not really sure uh, what to believe because of false information, uh, misleading information, scary information, but yet of real information. And I know we've also had other viruses uh, come through, like the H1N1 several years ago and influenza A this, uh, this past year. These viruses also come through the population and also have a certain lethality to them. Uh, what have we learned and what do we know about those other viruses and the coronavirus and how should we act? Well, I think common sense is a big part of taking care of ourselves and our families. If there's a virus out there, something you don't see, and it's recommended that you wear a mask in case you go into a room where there's somebody who is infected and is coughing and sneezing, it gives you some protection. It doesn't give you 100% protection. I don't think anything does. But it should keep you from being afraid to live your life. You need to wash your hands. Keep your hands clean. Before you sit down to eat, wash your hands. If going out uh, to the grocery stores or shopping or whatever you're doing, wash your hands. I, I carry a little thing right on my cell phone where I'm constantly washing my hands. If I'm touching whatever, and then I'll wash my hands and so that I don't transmit anything, not just COVID, any kind of. You pick up GI things from uh, from inanimate objects all the time so that I don't transmit a disease to myself. I think these are the important things that we need to do. If you're sick, stay home. You know, don't contaminate. Don't uh, take the risk of giving it to someone else. Don't be afraid to call your doctor. Don't be afraid to go to the emergency room that you're going to get COVID. We take a lot of uh, protection for our patients. As soon as they walk in, we slap a mask on them. We do social distancing. We, we use every other bed. It's not right next to each other. So we do things that don't neglect yourself out of fear. That's the big problem. Well, we noticed in the uh, news media the other day where the uh, bars are opening and we saw a video of people all crammed in together in uh, patio situations, uh, no social distancing, everybody uptight and personal and up close and personal. How um, responsible it, is that or is that okay? It's not real responsible because now what we will see is you're going to see a rise in the number of, of, of people who have COVID. That's just going to naturally occur. And so then when that starts, when you start to see a rise in, in the incidence of the disease, you have to step in and take certain measures. What are the certain measures? Well, we're going to have to close down that bar because people are all hugging and drinking and, and spreading the sharing drinks and spreading the disease around. This is not responsible behavior. I'm sorry until we get through this. And I have to tell you, I think this, is, this virus is going to be with us again. Once we get it under control, it will surface again in the fall, like many of these seasonal viruses do. The H1N1 is still around, comes in the fall, so we're not done with it. So we have to learn to be not just take care of ourselves, but be a good steward of our community. And that means wearing a mask. Even though you don't think you need it, 
maybe that other guy needs you to need it. You know, don't is, is it ac- is it accurate about the mask that for the most part, uh, one the N95 mask we hear so much about, unless yeah. you have a properly fitted N95 mask, it's not necessarily going to protect you from a a high virus environment uh, from the COVID, but uh, having an N95 mask or having a surgical mask or a cloth homemade mask is basically designed to to keep you from spreading what you may have if you're an asymptomatic carrier. Is is that about it? Yeah, that's correct. And what I've told a lot of, because the masks were, uh, were premium, that a lot of these cloth masks that are being made that have pockets in them, early on I would say to people, they're saying, well, it's just a cloth mask. I said, you know in your vacuum cleaner it has a HIPAA filter, which is what the airlines use, by the way. I said, Mm -hmm. clip some of that and put it in the pocket of your mask. Okay, that gives you an extra step. That doesn't mean you don't wash your hands. That doesn't mean you don't do social distancing. That doesn't mean you can be around someone who's stinky sick with it. It means that it gives you an extra protection. Okay, and HIPAAs get about 95% of what's circulating around there. So you have a cloth, and then you have a filter, then you have another cloth. So every layer that you you wear protects you from anything, not just from Mm -hmm. COVID. A lot Um, of stuff out there. Yeah. Well, your your experience, you work in an emergency room, and Mm -hmm. uh, people are referred to emergency rooms if they go to their primary care physician with symptoms that can be consistent with COVID, and uh, their their primary care physician is going to tell them, go to the emergency room if you have these symptoms and you, you have them. So people are coming to your emergency room because some doctor has said, go to the emergency room because of these symptoms. What's your experience with these people coming over? Does everybody have COVID or what's going on? No, everyone doesn't have COVID. Um, uh, many people have other things. Some people just have the common cold, which, by the way, is a COVID coronavirus. Um, some people have pneumonia, the run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia that we see all the time, particularly this time of year. A lot of influenza A, a lot of influenza B. That's what I'm saying. Yes, I do see COVID, Um People come in and I take a good history from them. Well, why do you think it's COVID? You know, because you have this or that or the other thing, it could be uh, five different diseases, not necessarily COVID. I personally test everybody that comes in because I think we need to know what we're dealing with. And I would say about half the people I tested have co- were COVID positive and nobody got admitted. They had mild disease, went home, and I would call them every day and check on them. How is this? How is that? And they were getting better at home. I'm do you prescribe medications? Do you prescribe any uh, medications? Um, some individuals I'll give azithromycin to, um, and those individuals usually are the kind that have a history of smoking and they have a seasonal bronchitis, that sort of thing. So I find I sort of put them on a different tier. I'm not mm-hmm. treating the COVID. I'm trying to treat the complications that would make the COVID worse. That's so like I a do. secondary bacterial infection. That mm-hmm. Correct. 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 And is that what we call Z-Pack? So yes, you know, we hear that. Mm-hmm. So Z-Pack. So, and uh, that is there anything that you tell them, or you, from a treatment standpoint, tell someone with a positive COVID nineteen um, what they should do as far as I guess rest, drink plenty of fluids, typical flu type right. treatments. They have to. They have to self quarantine for fourteen days. 14 days. When they are without fever for 72 hours, 
without taking anything to treat a fever, then we say you can go outside again, taking all the precautions that you normally should take, a mask, washing your hands, social distancing. That's what we do. Have you, I call, have you seen? I call, go ahead. Go ahead. I call oh, them every ahead. day You're, if call. they're positive uh, to see how they're doing because if they're progressing and not is getting worse, then they have to come back to the emergency room. We have to address it. So I just don't throw them out there and say good luck. You know, <laughs> people are afraid of so, this disease. They, well, they're terrified. I think we're all yeah. terrified. And uh, the thought is, how do we live with this fear? How do we get over the fear? And do you have a, a sense for how ubiquitous or how widespread? this live viruses are are we all walking in clouds of this stuff or do we really get some help by looking for people who might have some symptoms or listening up for people who have had contact with people like that how, how well, do we navigate I, this well in it's like they did in japan they had the cluster you know somebody had uh, had covid were tested, they were positive then they would look at all their contacts and everybody be tested and everybody would be isolated that was positive or potentially going to be infected. Here, as we test more and more people uh, without using just the strict guidelines, you're going to find a lot more people have the disease. And we may have a certain herd immunity that we didn't even know about, but it's too soon to know that. What we'll find out as we open more and more things, as people migrate more, that we're going to see more COVID. Most people will have a very mild case. They won't have these terrible things happening to them. Um, and, and, and I think this virus is going to run its course as most viruses do. You're always going to have a certain percentage of at-risk population, high-risk population, and a certain uh, sometimes substantial mortality from it uh, uh, be, because they haven't been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, with the H1N1, well, the, it was young kids that were very, very sick with it. Most people over the age of 60 didn't get it. But we had a lot of people dying. A lot of people had it, over 60 it million. Did, it didn't seem as, as bad as what we have here with the well, you didn't um, have the media COVID-19. Hysteria. No, the media. Well, we're running out of time, but Dr. Ann Carroll, thank you so much for sharing with us. And I'd like to have you back again as... As we go through this experience with COVID-19 and the economy and media and the health, but um, in any event, we'll all get through it. Thank you for your help today. All right. Thank you very much. Bye now. Thank you so much. Bye Mm -hmm. now. We'll be uh, back after these words. We're taking a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, And uh, again, in our special edition for the COVID virus type of a theme here, uh, we've been talking a lot about the medical science and about the virus and about the spread. But we haven't talked much about the aspect of people in their employment, and, and not just from the employer's perspective, but from the employee's perspective. We have two labor lawyers on who work with workers' compensation. We are joined today by Leland Vincent and Michael Madden. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. 
Thanks for being here. Uh, and you guys have been on uh, The Advocate before, and we talked about uh, workers' compensation claims and that kind of thing, and I know that's your specialty area. Uh, with regard to what's been happening the last three months here, uh, what, what are some of the issues that maybe employees should be aware of? Well, I think what the first issue you have to take a look at is the exposure. Um, many people are concerned going to work that they're being exposed to COVID-19, and is that a compensable workers' compensation claim? Now, in, in most cases, at least the Bureau has indicated that uh, communicable diseases like COVID-19 are not workers' comp claims because people are exposed in a variety of ways. And few jobs have a hazard of risk of getting the disease in a greater degree or in a different manner than the general public. However, if you have a job that poses a special hazard or risk and, contact, and uh, contract COVID-19 uh, from the B, uh, COVID-19, the BWC could allow your claim. Now, there are certain jobs where people have a higher risk factor, such as first responders, um, people in the medical field, and also, as we discussed, Meat packers, I believe, it was also a uh, an in, a industry that would be affected. Hmm. But, uh, I'd also include any of the healthcare industry, nursing homes, private home health aides, or nurses, because they're dealing directly in contact with individual people. And if the people they're working with have the infection, it's more likely to spread to them in those close quarters and settings. When we we talk about uh, having contact with somebody who has uh, COVID-19, and uh, we we look at somebody who goes to work, let's say the employer is aware that uh, there has been an exposure, there has been one of its employees has had the virus and was active with the virus when they're at work, uh, would that change things at all for someone who, say, works at like a Walmart or something? I'll ask Leland, how does that fit in? Yeah, I don't think so. It's just because the individual at Walmart is exposed to so many different people, it would be hard to target and say, okay, your exposure came from this, when it could have come from, you know, being uh, out at, a, at another store or being involved in some sort of activity. So I think it would be hard for, for coverage for that, for that type of claim. You know, one of the things I've been hearing about is that some employers, uh, if – they are open and the employee wants to work, they have to sign a waiver concerning COVID-19. Have, have you heard of that? And is, is that something that should be done? Uh, they can have them sign, but I don't think it's enforceable under the workers' compensation laws and statutes. You can't really sign away your rights to workers' compensation claims. Mm -hmm. so the employers mm -hmm. may want to do that, to try it, but I don't think it will be upheld if, in fact, they can prove that their exposure or their contracting the disease occurred at work. Hmm. And now, if uh, somebody is involved with the virus and it's job-related, well, what all is covered? I think, first and foremost, uh, be the medical benefits. So that if somebody is hospitalized, um, all those bills should be paid through workers' compensation. Um, also, if they're off of work due to the COVID-19 virus, then they should also be paid um, temporary toll disability to make up for the wage loss because of the uh, 
COVID-19 exposure and diagnosis. Uh, how does this interplay with the uh, federal and state benefits that are specifically COVID benefits? Uh, does that explain come what into, you mean by that? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, from what I understand is that uh, basically employers, uh, if someone has to say forcibly uh, self-quarantine because of the, the business shutting down, whether or not there's going to be continuation in a pay for the individual employees, uh, does this come into play in any workers' compensation claims? Let's say we have a nurse who presumptively contracted COVID uh, at work at a hospital. Uh, and if the hospital is receiving money from the federal government or from the state or if the individual nurses, uh, does this interplay in some way with the uh, workers' compensation claim she may have if she has contracted the disease and is off work for a couple of months? Uh, it certainly would. If she's receiving pay through her employer, then she would not receive the temporary total or her lost wages from workers' compensation. You can't get a double recovery. So, so that would have to be reported. The other. Mm -hmm. Yes, it would have to be reported. Now, that's interesting because some jobs where people are deemed to be essential, uh, we went through that. I don't know whether anyone's considered essential anymore since the economy is opening up. Uh, is that distinction still important? I don't think so. It's really about the, being able to prove that an individual contracted the disease through work or work exposure. So they're essential or not mm -hmm. essential really doesn't matter, I think. So if uh, anyone out there who's working and is concerned about going to work and possibly uh, contracting the coronavirus, I would think it might be helpful for them to keep a log as to who they're coming into contact with, just in case someday they might be asked to uh, identify the source and, and maybe related to, to work. Uh, would that be something wise to do? Any information you can compile which will show the exposure to help your claim is beneficial. When when someone is told not to come to work because they may have had an exposure, uh, is that does that qualify in any way for any kind of workers' compensation claim? Or would that be more uh, like an unemployment no, claim? Yeah, it would be unemployment. It does not... Uh, covered under workers' comp because workers' compensation for is, is for an actual injury to the individual worker. Mm -hmm. And this is just being you know, suspected to be exposed to the disease. So would this be more in line of falling under an occupational disease rather than an injury? So we don't have a specific injury date and emergency room visit and all of that, but uh, maybe we can link it to the job? If you're linking it to the job as the location, then it would be considered more of an occupational exposure or disease. But if you can show a date, time, and place where you came into direct contact with someone who was contagious while working, it might be considered an actual injury. And the spread of the virus itself um, would be the contact which would be considered the injury. So no, I know. Oh, we could play yeah, it ahead. either way. I said we could play um, that either way, 
but it's tough. Well, I, I know you know we've worked with uh, your law firm for years now uh, on these issues, and uh, beside having a workers' comp issue, you may have a third-party issue. Uh, say, for example, there was an employer who uh, had a uh, uh, an employee or two that were positive with COVID. They were likely the source of exposing other employees to it. Uh, an employee then contracts it from one of the coworkers and then takes it home with them. Would it be a situation where you would consider uh, the employee himself having a workers' comp claim, if you can prove that that's where he got it, and then with the family members who contracted, they may have a third-party claim against the employer? Is that something that might be entertained? We have about a minute. I don't, I don't think so. Um, the only, I'm thinking of the asbestos cases from years ago that the mm-hmm. iron workers and welders would be exposed. They would get on their clothing. They'd bring it home. Their families would be exposed to it. The workers had claims for asbestosis, but the family members didn't. They had separate liability claims against the asbestos makers, but that wasn't through workers' compensation. Um, So it really would be related to a faulty product. I don't see that with the COVID-19 virus. I see. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking about workers' compensation and COVID-19 and some of the issues that may be coming coming up based on that. And we're talking to uh, workers' compensation lawyers Leland Vincent and Michael Madden uh, from Cleveland, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. We'll again talk uh, to Leland and Michael uh, concerning these, these issues that are probably out there we'll be hearing about in the next uh, several months. We'll take a break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Uh, We're going to um, talk still about workers' compensation and the employment situation. Uh, Beside the scientific issues with medicine and the spread of the virus, we have the economic side of the house, side of the problem. And we're talking about workers' compensation, among other things. And with us, we have, uh, from the law offices of Dennis Seaman, we have Leland Vincent and also Michael Madden joining us, talking about workers' compensation. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, And, hey, real quick, do you guys have a website people can go to if they want to read up more about some of these topics we're talking about? S-E-A-M-A-N-A-T-T-Y dot com. Okay. Well, very, very good. So if anyone has any questions, they can... We have a website. We're also on Facebook as well. Very good. And that's Seaman.com. Dennis Seaman.com. Oh, very good. And um, real quick, what's your phone number out there in case anyone would want to give you a call? Okay. It's uh, 216-696-1080. Very, very good. Now, you guys do a lot of workers' compensation cases, and uh, I know that you're in hearings all the time. What's been happening down there with regard to the hearings uh, since these uh, last couple of months most people have been in quarantine? What's been happening? It's basically, it's a whole new ballgame is what's going on right now. 
normally we would have in-person hearings where we would be there with our client in front of the hearing officer and present our argument. But since the COVID-19 and uh, the problems with exposure, the Industrial Commission, where we have our hearings, has now gone to telephonic hearings. So the individual worker has a certain number they have to call into. Um, the attorney will also be on the call, opposing counsel, and the hearing officer, and will go through the hearing uh, as if we were there. Uh, there are, they are limiting the issues that they are hearing um, for these matters. Uh, specifically, they're only hearing allowance claims, claims for additional allowances, uh, temporary total disability and wage loss, permanent partial disability, and permanent total disability. The one thing they are not hearing, which is a major part of our docket, is treatment issues. So if somebody has a uh, issue regarding uh, surgery, that uh, issue right now is not being heard. However, if you contact your attorney, you can request an emergency hearing and hopefully get that on the docket. But other treatment issues, such as conservative treatment with a chiropractor, uh, diagnostic tests like MRIs and x-rays, those matters are not being heard. So all of that has been put on the back burner uh, as of today. Um, hopefully in the future, they will change that, but that's uh, what's going on with the hearing process. Personally, I'd rather be able to be in person with the hearing officer and my client so they can actually see my client, especially when there's evidence of uh, pain that my client's suffering from especially if he's got a, or he or she's got a back injury and has an awkward gait, and that's something you can visually see in regards to pain. When you're doing a hearing over the phone, you can't convey that to the hearing officer as well. So that's one of the drawbacks I find from um, doing these phone hearings. But the good thing is at least these hearings are going forward. Oh, well, you mentioned uh, with regard to medical treatment issues, uh, take, for example, somebody who has a spinal issue and is in chronic pain and they need spinal surgery. Uh, how difficult is it to get an emergency hearing, or do you just have to, to wait? Probably you'll have to wait, but you can contact the hearing administrator, get a letter or an affidavit from your client, submit that requesting an emergency hearing for the need for the surgery, and they will usually get it put on an emergency docket so that the injured worker does not have to wait months. And uh, that'll be a telephone hearing also? Yes. So that's all that's going. Anyone trying any Zoom hearings or hearings on the video teleconferencing uh, websites? No, they've got a system set up through the Industrial Commission. You call into a number and then you punch in a code which is set for your hearing only. And then you're connected to a hearing officer as well as your client and opposing counsel. You know, going back to another issue, we talk about um, COVID-19, the virus, the virus. If uh, the virus is uh, shown to be uh, acquired at work because you had to be working there and it is covered, and let's say the employee uh, is off for, for months recovering and then unfortunately passes away. Uh, what type of benefit might there be in, in the death of, a, of an employee who dies from COVID-19 that's recognized? Are there certain benefits that the state would provide? Uh, yes, there's 
for the deceased, the burial benefit, there, if there is a surviving spouse or minor children that survived the deceased, they would have a claim for death benefits, uh, which would be paid bi-weekly to the surviving spouse and or minor children. And um, again, it's a question of medical proof, but again, if the doctors certify that the claim occurred while working, I think that would be pretty straightforward. Well, we're expected to know so much about all of these different uh, rights that we have. If someone is involved with workers' compensation-type issues involving uh, the COVID-19 virus, then they should uh, speak to their lawyers or, or speak to one of us, speak to Leland or, or Michael. The... Um, other question, how do we handle things or how are things going with regard to statutes of limitations? And we have a very short statute of limitations now in Ohio uh, for one year. Uh, are these extended or anything changed now during the shutdown that we've been experiencing? I mean, from what we've heard, that um, yes, the statutes have been expanded for uh, a brief period of time. However, we're still... Um, the way we look at all claims and appeals is that we're going to still file within the statute of limitation. We're not going to take any undue risk at this point in time. But, yes, we have heard that they have been extended. Only yeah, okay. Only you have the exact date. I believe they were extending the statute to July 31st, and then after that they were going to see and determine if they needed to further extend the tolling statute to help the attorneys and the claimants with um, the ability to file because our movement is still limited, but they're hoping or expecting by the end of July that everything should be back to normal. Just sort of a, a question of practicality with all this social distancing. Uh, how, how are you guys getting signatures from people? Do you still have to meet with them face-to-face -face or can they sign things, uh, giving you authorization to sign stuff for them or... What, what's happening with the signature issue? Most of our cases that we're signing up now are done electronically. They can sign via the computer, email, and those documents are being accepted by the Industrial Commission and the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, as well as the medical facilities for, to obtain the medical records for our clients. So we're do, avoiding... Do, mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, is there anything special, technically speaking, that an employee needs to know about how to do an electronic signature, or is it simply just responding to an email saying, yes, I agree? I think that most people, especially younger than I am, are familiar mm -hmm. with the electronic transfers and signatures. For all of those clients that aren't, we just simply mail them documents to sign it and give them a return envelope. Now, in the and instance do where there, yeah, go ahead, well, instance, Yeah, in the instance where uh, they're awaiting a check and the check comes to our office, I'll actually go outside in the curb and meet them and have them sign the check there, and they can go on their way. So, curbside check-in is what we also offer. Well, well, very good. Well, as we're all sort of muddling through and learning at the same time how life is with the, the virus, and it is still a nasty virus. You know, we're over 100,000 deaths nationally now, and uh, we're going to be doing this method of practice for some time. 
but uh, I'd like to thank uh, both Leland and Michael for joining us tonight and talking about workers' compensation issues in, in the time of COVID-19. Thank both you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, nice talking with you, Nick. Thank, thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my